Uh, if you have uh, Bibles, we are going to be in um, the book of James, continuing our series in James this morning. Uh, and we're going to be in uh, James chapter 2, the second half uh, of that um, chapter. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 1012 uh, is where you will find today's text. And this part of James is really one of the more memorable parts uh, of James's letter. If you're familiar with James's letter at all, uh, you're likely familiar with this particular piece of it. Not least of which that is so, uh, because for centuries, Christians have wrestled uh, with how James is teaching in this text about faith and works and the relationship between them, how that corresponds to other teachings in Scripture, like, for example, the Apostle Paul's on the same topics. So in places like Romans 3, Paul says it's faith alone that justifies us, that saves us. It's faith alone that declares us right in the eyes of God. James is going to say here, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so throughout the history of the church, some have seen these as contradictory and even uh, irreconcilable. But diving into the text this morning, uh, what I hope you will see is not only are James and Paul not at odds with each other, but as they address really what are different errors from different vantage points, they become really complementary and really helpful to one another. They actually provide for us these guardrails that keep us from falling off the cliff, that keep us from taking what either one of those authors independently would have never wanted us to take their teachings, twisting them into something that they never intended. Different maladies uh, require different remedies, right? So you, you don't go to the doctor, for example, with a headache and, and hope that you'll get like an amputation, right? Um, different maladies require different remedies. And so as we prepare to read this text this morning, just the question that I would ask you to consider is this. Are you more inclined to try and earn God's favor by your actions? Or are you more inclined to presume upon your faith and allow your faith or your kind of quote-unquote faith to become a pass from radical acts of mercy and justice and charity and love for others? In reality, we're prone to both of those things in different ways. There's something in these words of James for all of us, but especially in this month focused on ministries of mercy and justice in our world, wherever we're inclined to presume upon our faith and wherever we're inclined to allow that to really give us an excuse, a pass from loving and serving others, James's words are going to cut to the heart uh, and they're going to show us really the inseparability of faith and works. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is James chapter 2. Uh, I'll start in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Almighty and gracious Father, the true understanding of your word helps us to grow into the fullness of the salvation that you so freely offer in Christ. Grant to all of us this morning that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through Christ our Lord. Amen. So James here in these verses uses four devices uh, to make his point that faith without works is dead. We'll look briefly at each one. He uses an illustration, an objection, two examples, and a metaphor. An illustration, an objection, two examples, and a metaphor. So first, an illustration. Uh, Notice something right up front. James believes that faith saves. James believes that. That's really important because it's not that Paul is an advocate for faith and James is an advocate for works. Neither of those people see these as alternative options for how we enter into a relationship with God. If you read Paul uh, over and over again, you will hear very radical calls to obedience, very radical calls to faithful action, to works. And James already in this letter has been talking about the testing of our faith and how we are as believers to receive with meekness the implanted word. In other words, to have faith and to believe. When James asks this rhetorical question here in verse 14, can that faith save him? That shows us that James isn't objecting to faith as the basis for salvation. What is James objecting to? He's objecting to a faulty definition of faith a faulty understanding of faith that has somehow seeped its way into these churches to whom he is writing. So for James, uh, for Paul, for the Christian, faith and works, they always go together. They cannot be pieced apart. They cannot be compartmentalized. Faith always works or it is not genuine faith at all. And James here compares this to encountering a person who is poorly clothed and in need and offering them only words of blessing without any kind of action. It's particularly reprehensible that this person, James is referring to here, uh, is also part of their small Christian community. He's a brother or, or she's a sister, as James refers to him. As Christians, we're, we're, really, we're called to care for all people, regardless of whether they agree with us or believe the same things that we do or not. But one of the ways that we especially display the worth of Christ to the world is by showing care and loving and providing for the needs of fellow believers in Christ. Now there are times when the best way to love someone, the best way to care for someone comes through words and comes through conversation. But this, what James is referring to here, this illustration, it's not one of those times. When you see someone in obvious material need, we're not only to give them words of blessing or words of encouragement, we're to do what is in our power to do to actually meet the needs that they have. And so practically for us, this means things like partnering with great organizations like New Hope Ministries, like Bethesda Mission, as many of you here in the room do. 
But beyond partnerships like that, there's really a, a, a level of personal ownership here. It means that we anticipate the opportunities that we might have in daily life to meet the needs of others, and we're prepared for those things. So let me ask you this. If you were to encounter today on your way to lunch after this or your way to visit a family member later today, if you were to encounter a homeless person or were to encounter someone that asked you for money, how would you respond? Would you be prepared to respond to that person? Would you have something to offer him or her more than just some words of well-wishing? Maybe in that moment, maybe you're like right now freaking out, I have no idea what to do. And you wouldn't be prepared. That happens. Uh, And in that case, actually, the best thing for us to do is to just admit that. So just admit that we want to help, but we really have no idea how. The reason that James' illustration here is so condemnable is because what this person offers instead is like righteous-sounding platitudes without any real intention to care or to act. So as one author described it, this is a religious cover for the failure to act. It's a religious cover for the failure to act. It's a dismissal. It just sounds nice. And in that sense, actually, it's really not altogether different from what we might have, from how we might use the phrase, I'll pray for you. Um, we can say that with all sincerity. And it is a way to genuinely care for people to pray for them and to pray for their needs. But we can also offer those words as a pious sounding dismissal of another person. It's just a more churchy way of essentially saying like, wow, that sounds hard. Good luck with that. I'll pray for you. That's, that's different than actually loving that person, pleading with God for, for God to intervene in their life. Whether it's a material need or a spiritual need, if we truly want to help but we don't know how, let's say that. Let's say that. Let's not offer empty words of blessing as a cover for a failure to act. And the whole point here of James's illustration is that just as these words of this person, this pious-sounding person, are no profit to that poor person, so faith without works, it's no profit to the Christian. The words are empty just as faith without works is empty. It's inherently defective, or to use James's word, it's dead. Next, James anticipates an objection. An objection. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. We don't know exactly if this is a hypothetical objection or if this is a real objection from someone in one of these churches that James is writing to. Either way, it's an objection that has not gone away in the last 20 centuries of the church. When this objector says, you have faith and I have works, he or she is essentially saying, well, what if works aren't my gift? What if works aren't my gift? What if faith is my gift and works are your gift? Let me say this to you, friends. Um, Different gifts, different personalities, different preferences are very real and very important. They are never excuses for disobedience to Jesus. That's true uh, across the board. It's it's particularly true when it comes to acts of mercy and service and love. Faith and works cannot be compartmentalized into these separate categories. And to drill down on this point, James here talks about the, quote, faith of demons. Uh, If you're familiar with scripture, demons, we, we encounter them throughout the New Testament. Jesus has encounters with demons. They are spiritual forces of evil that are vehemently opposed to the rule and reign of God. But James says here, demons are actually some of the most orthodox theologians in all of the cosmos. 
Like they know, they affirm all of the right things about God. They even affirm the truth of the Shema, which is this ancient summary of faith from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Israel is called to hear and to believe that our God is one. Hear, Israel, our God is one. Say, demons believe that. Though that belief very much is necessary for salvation, there's a way to hold that belief and it not save you. That's what's true for demons, and that's what is likewise true, James says, for people who congratulate themselves on believing the right things, but really lack the genuine faith that works its way out into practical action. From where I sit, uh, we live in a moment where uh, we are particularly susceptible to excuse ourselves from key areas of Christian obedience. Uh, And part of the reason for that is that we live in a day where personality profiles, spiritual gift assessments, Myers-Briggs personality types, Enneagram scores, those things are increasingly popular. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I, uh, for the most part, I'm really grateful for all of those things. I've personally done many of those and benefited from them. Uh, they are truly helpful for self-awareness. They're truly helpful to take a stock of your life and who you are before God and how he's uniquely created and wired you to be part of the work that he does in the world. They're also really helpful for living life together, uh, leading and working alongside people who are very different from you. But these must always be tools for discernment, not dismissal. These must always be tools for awareness and not abdication. And they always have to be tools to hone our obedience and not to object to some aspect of it. So we can never neglect faithfulness to the word of God in favor of personality, in favor of gifting, in favor of preferences. In reality, just like with faith and works, these things are never meant to be at odds with each other. Our personality and our gifts are never meant to be at odds with obedience. It's just that we're prone to use them that way. There is a way to know and to apply yourself in ways that really do serve the kingdom of God in unique ways that you've been wired and called to do. That's how the different parts of the body of Christ work together and complement each other. And I say that to you to say, um, as you hear these opportunities this month to participate in ministries of mercy and justice, if you were to try to apply yourself to all of those at the same time, you would wreck yourself. So don't do that. Don't hear this as like a condemning, you better do all of these things right now. Instead, you'll always in your life uh, carry the, the load, carry the weight for certain kinds of ministries. You'll advocate for certain kinds of ministries of mercy in a disproportionate way more than you will others. That's all right and good. Just don't ever let personality gifting preference become an excuse to not obey Jesus in these areas that he's called us to follow him. Third, James points to two examples two historical biblical examples of people whose faith works. Uh, Over the past six months or so, we've actually been able to look at both of these people, Abraham and Rahab, in greater depth than we will today. They are the two examples that James cites as uh, those whose faith expresses itself in works. And moreover, how works are actually part of a believer's justification. So think about it this. Let's step back a little bit. The purpose of our faith as Christians, what's the purpose of our faith? What's it supposed to do? It's supposed to save us. It's supposed to justify us. And James is saying here that faith without works can do neither of those things. So in verse 20, when James says here, faith apart from works is useless. 
The word that he uses there is literally workless. It's a play on words. And James is saying, faith without works doesn't work. Faith without works doesn't work. It doesn't save. It doesn't justify. And this is really where James's teachings seem most opposed to like the Apostle Paul's, for example. Does justification, being declared righteous in the eyes of God, does that come through faith alone or does it come through works? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Uh, let me explain. For a Christian, justification is not just a, a, a one-time thing. There's an initial justification, an initial verdict, and there's a, something called final justification, judgment before God on the last day. When we come to faith in Christ, we're declared righteous, we're justified solely by faith, solely because we believe in the work of Jesus on our behalf, his death and his resurrection. So we don't earn our salvation. Uh, We don't gain a relationship with God through our works. And this is what we hear Paul emphasizing over and over again when he says that faith alone justifies. And it's a really critical truth for us to believe in all moments of our lives, but especially when we're tempted to think that God loves us more or less because of our performance. Or when we would want to add something to Jesus' finished work on our behalf, something that would, that would increase our standing before God. We want to add something to what Jesus has done. Or when in our moments of weakness, we fail and we fall short and we're concerned that that means that God has cut us out of the family. You know, we're off the team now. If that's you and when that's you, when you're in those kind of moments, you need to know always and forever that you are saved on the merits and the basis of Jesus' work and not your own. But, What if that's not your error? What if instead you're prone to presume upon your relationship with God and you're prone to view it as as some kind of cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card and not really ever pursue or care about faithfulness or not ever put your faith into action? This is what James is confronting. He's highlighting the significance of final justification, this final verdict on the last day. And when we read about final justification in Scripture— we read that that incorporates the works that we do as Christians as a genuine expression of our faith. One of the most famous places in Scripture is Jesus himself in Matthew 25, separating the sheep from the goats. He's saying, these are those who will spend eternity with me. These are those who will spend eternity separated from me. And his primary criteria in that judgment, justification or lack thereof, is how we have treated those deemed uh, unworthy and unlovable by society, the quote-unquote least of these. Our faith is shown to be genuine by living a life with these kinds of works, this kind of mercy and charity for people considered the least of these. And so our works, what we do in our lives as an expression of genuine faith, they are a critical part of that final declaration. They're caught up into that. So a scholar named Francis Ginch helpfully puts it this way. When speaking about justification, quote, Paul is dealing with obstetrics. In other words, how new life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how Christian life grows and matures and ages. So works very much have a role in our justification. Now this is really important. It's not that we ever earn our salvation. We never earn favor or our place with God. But, Works confirm that our faith is genuine. So faith saves. Works confirm the authenticity of that faith. And we will be justified on the basis of our genuine faith that is always expressing itself in works. 
These are hard concepts um, to wrestle through and wade through. Ultimately, we have to hold faith and works together and not compartmentalize them. And if you're, especially if you're a visual learner, this is a diagram that's been really helpful to me. Has this been up there the whole time? That's awesome if it was. That's, but yeah, this is a diagram that's just really helpful to me in a simple way to hold these things together, which is James's whole point in this part of the letter. Faith compels works. Genuine faith always compels works. Works confirm or complete our faith. And the two examples that James uses here, Abraham and Rahab, illustrate this. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul and James, interestingly enough, both quote that passage to support their points. Fascinating. And that's, that's where we see that these are really complementary and not separate. Um, so he believed God. That's faith. But that genuine faith compelled this impossible obedience of sacrificing his only son, Isaac. And he had all but followed through with that obedience when God intervened and stopped him. So that work, that action, those preparations, the, the raising of the knife above his head, confirmed the genuineness of his faith. He's justified by works in the sense that that confirmed the genuineness of his faith. In verse 22 here in James, it says that Abraham's faith was completed by his works. And that sounds actually a lot like what uh, the Apostle John is going to say in 1 John chapter 4, that when we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Now, John's point when he says that is not that God's love is lacking and that we have to make up for what is lacking in God's love. He's saying that the expression of God's love is lacking because God himself is spirit. He's not a tangible, visible being. And so similarly, works confirm or complete faith because they take what is unseen and intangible and they make them tangible, thereby proving their authenticity. Rahab, likewise, had heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But she demonstrated the kind of genuine faith that saves only when she harbored those spies, those messengers, and protected them. Her faith compelled her to take risky, treasonous action against her own people and thereby prove the the sincerity, the genuineness of her faith. Now here's the beauty of these two examples and why James includes them. In many ways, Abraham and Rahab could be no more different than they are. Abraham is a wealthy, mostly moral. We know better because we've read the actual parts of Genesis that he's not. Mostly moral, male, father of the Jewish nation. It's even referred to as our father here in the text. He's a major character in redemptive history. Rahab is poor. She's not an Israelite. She's a foreigner. She's a woman. She's always identified by her immorality. She's always in scripture referred to as Rahab the prostitute. How would you like that attached to your name for the rest of your life? She's a minor character for all intents and purposes. But the point is for Abraham, for Rahab, for everybody in between, we're justified by a working faith. Lastly, a metaphor. Metaphor. Verse 26. As the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. The assumption of everything that James says here is that genuine faith always works. So in these verses, what James is having to do is unnaturally piece those things apart, break those things apart, and talk about them in their components that really, at the end of the day, can't exist separately. So this metaphor at the end of his words here, it's the perfect picture for that. 
The body and the spirit cannot be broken apart in life. And in the same way, faith and works cannot be broken apart in the life of a Christian. Or stated a little bit differently, when the body and the spirit are separated, that's because you're dead. When the body and spirit are separated, that's because you're dead. When the body doesn't have a spirit anymore, it ceases to be. And in the same way, when faith and works are separate, that is because spiritually you are dead. You have no life in you. And whatever you've mistakenly thought was faith really is exposed to be nothing. In the design of God, death is unnatural. Death is unnatural. It's the unnatural separation of body and spirit. It's so unnatural, actually, that at the final resurrection, when all people rise and are given a new body, there's a, new, there's a reunion of body and spirit for any who have died on this earth. And James's point is faith without works is as unnatural as this body without a spirit. So I would implore you to use James's words here, this metaphor in particular, as a diagnostic in your life. If in your life you perceive the separation of faith and works, don't ignore that. Become resensitized to the unnaturalness of that separation. And ask yourself, why the disconnect? Why the disconnect? What is it that is, that is stopping my faith from compelling works? Where is that breaking down? If it's ignorance, you know, you, you want to act, you want to work, but you don't know how. That's, that's acceptable. Just own the responsibility to learn. Lean in and learn what it would look like to put your faith into action. If it's weakness, and you just find yourself incapable of working or helping, Seek help in your weakness. We're all weak and fickle. And at times we will, of course, lack zeal for pursuing this, for for living out our faith in active and sacrificial ways. That's actually part of what unites us in this journey of faith and following Jesus, our weakness and our fickleness. James's point here is not to quantify, to put precise expectations of works that apply for everyone at all times. It is to say, if you're not working out your faith, That's unnatural. Don't be content to stay that way. Or if it's, let's say, obstinance, and you find that in yourself, or worse, maybe even, presumption, and presuming that because you've prayed some words in the past, or you've attended church services, or you check the right box and all the the right doctrinal convictions, or if your gifts and your personality have led you to give yourself a pass from really serving the least of these, from living a life of mercy and charity and love and justice on behalf of others, then let James unequivocally here call you to repentance and to a genuine faith. Because James's point here is that faith works. It always works its way out into active participation into the work and mission of God in the world. And I'll close with this. Please hear the heart behind James's words in this letter. And that is that the life of the world is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we are dependent upon it, that we are saved through it, and that we desperately want others to experience that same kind of life and salvation. In his good design, God sends his people out into the world so that he might use them to draw more to himself. So that he might display his glory and his worth to the world. Our participation in that serves the genuine good of other people. But here's the thing. Not only that, 
it also confirms that our faith is sincere. It helps us to know the genuineness of our own faith, that we might have confidence of our own place with God. And it is a profound kindness of God that our works not only bless others and serve the genuine good of others in the world, but they also bless us with that kind of assurance and that kind of peace before God. I'm reminded of the words of J.C. Ryle in his book called Holiness. And in it, in one of the chapters in it, he pleads with his readers to live in such a way that the sincerity of their faith is obvious on the day of their death. And he says this, When we have carried you to your narrow bed, let us not have to hunt up stray words and scraps of religion in order to make out that you were a true believer. Let us not have to say in a hesitating way to one another, I trust he is happy. He talked so nicely one day and he seemed so pleased with a chapter in the Bible on another occasion and he liked such a person who is a good man. Let us be able to speak decidedly as to your condition. Let us have some solid proof of your repentance, your faith, and your holiness so that none shall be able for a moment to question your state. So church, by your works, may you bless others made in the image of God. By your works, may you confidently know the sincerity of your own faith. And by your works, may all know that the life of the world is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. And pray for us. Jesus, the life of the world is found only in you. And forgive us for where we unnaturally separate faith and works. Forgive us for even having to, it's our own weakness, our own obstinance, our own presumption that make us have to break these things down into separate categories and talk about them. But we do, we need to. And forgive us where the disconnects exist in our lives. I pray that your grace would renew us and strengthen us and expose in us why those disconnects are there. I pray that we would see and be called again to this genuine kind of faith that works its way out. And I pray specifically, as it's James's example in his heart, as it's your heart, Jesus, uh, in your own life and ministry, that particularly we would be called to works on behalf of the least of these, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the vulnerable. Would you give us a heart of mercy compelled by your own mercy toward us, Jesus. And I pray this morning that we would unite again what has been broken down, that our faith and our works would be inseparable and that the world would know uh, the glory of God and that the world would know our love and our sincerity of our faith as Christians by the way that we live it out and the way we serve others. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.